If you take your Bibles out with me and turn to the Gospel of John, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. If you were here with us last week, we heard about that incredible event of Christ's baptism and what it meant for us to be identified with Christ. And today we're going to hear Christ calling those first disciples who followed him on his earthly ministry. And then ask the question, what does that mean for us? And remember those questions I asked at the beginning of our service today. Where's the last place that you expect God to come from? And when you think of God moving, what's the last thing you'd expect God to do? Keep those questions fresh in your mind as we read this scripture today. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. If you'd follow along with me, I'm going to be reading in the Common English Bible, but read along in your scripture, your Bibles this morning as well. John chapter 1, starting with verse 43. The next day, Jesus wanted to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets, Jesus, Joseph's son from Nazareth. Nathanael responded, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is a genuine Israelite. In him there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are God's son. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. I assure you that you will see heaven open and God's angels coming down from heaven and down to earth on the human one. Let this be a word of the Lord to you this morning. Thanks be to God. John tells us that he has just invited Andrew and Peter to go to Galilee with him. And then Jesus found Philip, John tells us. Philip has, no, uh, has so little to go on. He has just met this, this person named Jesus, and yet he has everything. He has seen Christ's face. Can, can you imagine Christ walking up to you? and finding you uh, like he found Philip. So he goes and finds Nathanael, who is skeptical at first. You heard Nathanael's response to Philip. Philip doesn't launch into any logic. I, as someone who really enjoys facts and figures, Philip doesn't respond by trying to convince Nathanael to come or to defeat his skepticism. Philip doesn't launch into logic. He alludes to Scripture as Christ fulfilling the law of Moses and the prophets, but he doesn't quote anything at Nathaniel. 
He, what I envision, he just grabs his hand and says, come and see in verse 46, come and see. Just like Philip saw Christ's face, he just wants Nathaniel to come and see. That's our witness, right? No sledgehammer of truth, no harsh, arrogant rhetoric that we have the answers and the unbelieving skeptic doesn't, but an experience, an experience of seeing Jesus, an experience of experiencing the presence of Christ, an experience that makes you sure that if somebody else simply saw Jesus, it would be enough. Our calling is always to come and to see. We do not ponder anybody at a distance. I, I often hear that if you only hang around with people like yourself, you become arrogant and ignorant because you have no exposure to people outside your close group. And honestly, that takes place on social media a lot. We get only the following that we want and the friends that we want typically. And so our news feeds are filled only with the content that we agree with already and that we want to hear. And we get very little exposure in our echo chambers online. People outside those bubbles. So we go to others, to those not really expecting us. We find both Jesus and ourselves there because Christ is always seeking others and is already there before we even arrive. I heard a story recently of a rich donor who was visiting Calcutta and she got to meet Mother Teresa and the, the donor saw the poverty and pulled out her checkbook and said to Mother Teresa, how can I help you in your work? Mother Teresa pressed the checkbook back into the woman's purse and she took her by the hand and said, come and see, come and see. She led the woman into an impoverished borrow and found a hungry, frail child. Mother Teresa said, care for her. The woman took the child into her lap and wiped her brow and fed her. It was a transformative moment for the donor, not just to give those resources, but to be there and see what it meant to serve. Mother Teresa was right when she said, when we care for a child, we are caring for Jesus. When we love the unloved, we are loving Jesus. When we love our enemies, we are loving Jesus. 
I am forever intrigued by what Jesus says to Nathanael. Jesus recognizing him, prompting Nathanael to ask, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, I saw you. Right where you were, I saw you. Oftentimes, I feel like we don't, as a, as, a, as a Christian culture, we don't fall into the witness of asking our world to come and see Jesus. As we've seen on display recently, that we, we often have gotten caught up into a habit of trying to force Jesus onto others. As if the will of God must not only be taken by force, but displayed by force. When I was studying to be a pastor, I would often get stopped by street preachers with signs that said really unloving things to people. Things that anyone outside of the church would just be instantly turned off by it. Uh, condemnation to hell and and things like that. And I always remembered feeling so forced by fear into knowing Jesus, rather than being taken by the hand and said, come and see. And being a skeptic in my earlier years of life and knowing so many skeptics, the world is in such need of the church to say, come and see this one who already sees you and loves you. And even though we may disagree with things that are going on in the world, it's not going to be accomplished through conquering by, by violent force and taking what we think is ours. No, the, the gospel is clear with like the woman at the well and with Nicodemus and even Christ's enemies, he would always come along and want to illustrate and show the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. So why, what is it about this simple gospel about just wanting to come along in the world and say, come and see and walk alongside even our enemies, even those who are skeptic of who Christ is, so that they might experience Christ. Well, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with the events that have unfolded on our nation recently? I want to get more into the context of this scripture because I think it's absolutely relevant. Jesus finds Philip, and Philip means warlike or lover of horses, which horses were the tanks of first century battle, right? So Philip, this one who says that whose name means warlike or lover of horses, comes and finds Nathaniel, who whose name means God gives. 
Um, so you think of those two people talking together and one has this name that means warlike and the other one that means God gives and you can't help but think about is God warlike, is God the giver of horses that brings about conquering through the ways that we like to conquer things. And then where is Nathaniel found? He's found underneath the fig tree. And the fig tree is the third tree that is mentioned in all of Scripture, and it's continuously mentioned throughout the Bible. The first two trees, obviously, are the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the, the fig tree is actually mentioned when Adam and Eve clothe their nakedness in fig leaves. And then fig, the fig tree is noticed by Jeremiah and the prophet Joel uh, all throughout the Old Testament and many uses in Isaiah as correlation with Israel. That because of humanity's clothing and garbing themselves in their nakedness, the fig tree is the symbol of Israel. One that Christ even uses as a parable of needing to bear good fruit in the world. And we all know that parable of the gardener that the fig tree doesn't produce fruit. And so God threatens to cut it down. And yet the loving gardener who we know to be as Jesus says, give it one more year. And if the fig tree doesn't produce fruit, then it'll meet its natural end. But give it one more year. Let me tend the soil. Christ is responding in wanting the fig tree in the world to see the splendor of God's presence. And so that Nathaniel being found underneath the fig tree would be a lot like an American being found under a great big statue of a bald eagle and the, the beautiful American flag above it. Those, those sorts of symbols of patriotism and love for our country and the symbols that actually represent a lot about our history as a, a nation and a country. It would be like finding an American sitting underneath one of those. That's the sort of symbol that Israel felt about the fig tree um, in that time. And I don't know why Nathaniel was sitting under it. Perhaps he was grieving where Israel had come. They were under dominion of Roman rule. They, they had such prosperity in the good old days of, they could read it in the Old Testament where Israel was the greatest nation. And yet now they're being conquered by Rome and they're under Roman rule and all of these laws and, and taxes and things like that because of the Roman rule. Perhaps he's lamenting their state. Perhaps he's sitting there wondering about Israel's future, praying for Israel. I, no matter what he is doing, he's sitting under the tree, maybe lamenting the past, but hoping that Israel, or like the fig tree, would produce good fruit in the future. And then Philip comes along and says, Come, we have found Jesus, the Messiah. He's son of Joseph from Nazareth. And in Nathaniel's mind and in Philip's mind, and especially in Simon the Zealot's mind, and you can look up what zealots were. We call them terrorists today. They're ones who incite violence or insurrection against 
the, the, the prevailing government. And Simon and Judas Iscariot and uh, Barabbas that was uh, traded for Jesus at his trial. These are all zealots who are seeking insurrection against Rome. And so in that prevailing time where we see this very political symbol that Nathaniel is sitting under, we can imagine that they're hoping for a Messiah that would come to the seat of power in Jerusalem, the temple, this place of, of God's law and sovereignty over the world, they always thought that the Messiah would come in the temple. And so Nathaniel's response is right in line with that and says, Nazareth, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? A Messiah, the Messiah that's going to set us free from Rome, the Messiah that's going to give us a, a triumphant return for our nation as a people, is going to come from Nazareth? That's only the place where peasants come from. That's only the place of people for, with low repute come from, bad reputations. And Philip, whose name means warlike, lover of horses, says, hey, you just got to come and see. And what does Jesus mention about Nathaniel? Does he mention his humble heart? Does he, does he mention that who's he, who he is a son of? Does he mention his, his Hebrew lineage? No, he actually mentions his nationality. Here comes an Israelite, right? That's his national identity, like we would say as an American in whom we find no deceit. Nathaniel is an Israelite, in whom we find no deceit, Jesus said. And the rest plays out as you know it. He says, how did you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip came. We can't help but think of the fig tree, and then the numerous analogies, especially in the book of Acts, of Jesus being crucified on a tree. Crucified for the salvation of the world, and crucified in the criminal's death of Deuteronomy 21. It is through Christ's death on the tree that he becomes the first fruits of everlasting life. And that is why for us, the cross is a tree of life for what it symbolizes. Christ's death brings us eternal life. The fruit of the fig tree is one that produces righteousness in the world, like John the Baptist says. And the fruit of the tree of the cross is the first fruits of righteousness, the first fruits of God's salvation in the world, the first fruits of resurrection that we see at the tomb in the garden. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from meekness, from humble beginnings? As we see in the gospel, God used the most unexpected person from the most unexpected place to bring good news. Just like in the Israelites' mind, they thought of a triumphant military Messiah. And I know I've talked about that before, but it's entirely relevant today. They wanted a military Messiah to come and, and rescue them from Rome. 
And when they found out that that's not what Jesus had come to do, there was not just confusion, but a, a hope that they could force his hand to be the Messiah they wanted him to be. They didn't think that anything good could come from meekness. They were looking for toughness. They didn't think anything good could come from humility. They were looking for brash, brash presentation of force. They didn't think anything good could really come from washing people's feet, healing the sick, having authentic debates with people who disagreed with him like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or being in solidarity with the lowly like tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, thieves, the lame. They didn't understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus was trying to bring in the world. And oftentimes, I don't think we do either. Many in our culture deeply believe that things are accomplished through displays of brute strength and force. You see, we often settle just for the fig tree. Those, those deeply ingrained political symbols that have so much history and love from us, we turn those things into the fruits, the end all, the salvation for all people. That is if God is wanting to use the fig tree to save us and its fruits when we are the fig tree. Our fruits are only good and contain the fruit of righteousness when we are attached and given ourselves over to the tree of the cross. The, the fruit that was born on that tree, Jesus Christ, his death, his life, his resurrection. We often so settle for the fig tree rather than the, the tree of life, which is the cross and its fruit, Jesus Christ. As great as Israel was, or as great as America thinks it is, it will always just be a fig tree. Yet when we see it as if it will bring the will of God into the world, or as if it will somehow be called the city or light on a hill, or God's chosen people, God's new chosen people, as if it was supposed to be like Israel of the Old Testament. That is when we can fall into the kind of nationalism we saw on the Capitol steps in January in January 6th on Wednesday. We move from a healthy patriotism of love of country and our citizens and our desire for democracy and encourage people from other countries to love their countries as well. We move when we get caught up in just the fig tree alone and lose sight of the tree of the cross. We move into nationalism that places our country as exceptional over all the countries of the world. And we believe it to be the thing that dispenses God's will in the world. And of course, that naturally results in trying to bring God's will by force. When that's not what we see in Jesus. 
because of that notion of Christian nationalism. Christians need to reclaim America is what they believe. And there were people that stormed the Capitol steps, many armed with guns, but also holding signs that read, Jesus saves. Some were even carrying Bibles, waving it in the air, and then kneeling at a cross to pray before storming the Capitol steps. I want to say unequivocally this morning that Jesus had nothing to do with storming the Capitol steps. There was nothing about Jesus in regards to those actions. I want us to imagine for a moment, what would our response be as an American people if it were Muslim extremists that stormed the Capitol in that same way, held up the Quran, waved their AK-47s, and carried signs that said, Allah saves, what would have been your response to that? Now imagine how you're feeling right now about the attack on our capital. And imagine how good, faithful, devoted Muslims, like many of my friends, and how they feel when they see extremists of their own faith cause terror and chaos in the world. I imagine that's where many of us are today, just like good, devout Muslims when they see extremists in their faith lament and have their hearts broken. We Christians are feeling that same way, and we should. The amount of Christian symbolism in that attack on the Capitol steps should grieve our hearts because it has nothing to do with our faith in Christ. That was Christian extremism. It was domestic terrorism, and it was done in many ways in the name of Jesus Christ. And we have to contemplate and consider how the world sees us because of events like that. And it wasn't the first time in our country that something like that has happened. That was a huge display of it but many other times in our country's history has that been done. This is what is called religious nationalism. When a group of people believe that it is their religious duty to claim, lay claim to their nation so that it will do and obey the will of God including its leaders, including all of its government, including all citizens, conformity to the will of God. This is not the way of Christ's kingdom. Christian nationalism has no room in the gospel. And I, I want you to see that in scripture. I'm not gonna just tell you that. I'm going to back that up with scripture this morning. Do you know that religious nationalism is why Peter rebuked Jesus? When Jesus predicted his crucifixion, Peter turned to him and said, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be with you. Why? Because you can't lead an insurrection against Rome with a dead Messiah. And Jesus turned to him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. 
You have the things of the world on your mind, not the things of God. Religious nationalism is why Judas betrayed Jesus, because he deeply believed in Christ's divinity and his, his being one with God, that he thought if he forced his hand by being arrested by the Romans, he would respond in protecting of himself, calling down the legions of angels and starting the insurrection against Rome. When that didn't happen, Judas took his life in despair because he had turned over an innocent man very well being the Messiah that he was longing for. Religious nationalism is the reason why Christ had a hasty, unfair arrest and trial and execution, and they traded him for Barabbas, who was a known insurrectionist, to lead violence against Rome. And he died the death of a criminal on a cross, executed under Roman rule. Religious nationalism is what led Paul to persecute the church, wanting to keep Israel pure from any foreign types of religion. And the cult of Christianity, as was known to him as a Pharisee, was spreading, and he saw it upon himself to drive the church out and do so through the sword. And Jesus stopped him on Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? And that opened the way for the gospel to be spread to the Gentiles because he stopped his work of nationalism. And religious nationalism is actually what Jesus rebuked in Acts 1 because the disciples were still advocating a religiously nationalistic perspective. And Jesus said, just go to Jerusalem, sit down, be quiet, and wait for the Holy Spirit. And friends, what happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came down and they heard the tongues of every single nation standing there. Every men and women proclaiming the will of God in the world. All the world. It was the reverse of the Tower of Babylon where it wasn't an exclusivity of God's power for one people anymore. One nation. It was the expansive power of the Holy Spirit that was poured out for all people. All nations of the world. And it was the birth of the church. The church that is called to be one body, no matter what nation it calls home. One body across the whole world because of what God gave us through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And after Pentecost, the disciples didn't talk about religious nationalism anymore. They didn't take up weapons to try to lead insurrection against the people that were unjustly holding them captive. But they believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are Christians today because of that legacy. Not the legacy of Constantine, not the legacy of the Crusades, not the legacy of the Inquisitions, not the legacy of anyone who took up arms to spread the faith. No, Christ condemns that. That is not the way of the Messiah. It is through the mercy, joy, peace, loving kindness, self-control the fruits of the Holy Spirit that were given to us through Christ Jesus.
We as the church have a long road to go from what the world saw, not only on the Capitol steps on January 6th on Wednesday, but how we have conducted ourselves in relationship to political power. We have repentance to do. We have seen ourselves through a lens of supremacy, that we are the dominant faith and this country needs to be taken back for God to dispense the will of God to the people. That is not the call of the church. If Jesus wanted a government or a nation, he would have established one. Jesus established the church and did it for a reason. And we have traded our identity as the church in for being Christian nationalists. We have more affinity towards our political party and even hold our clergy and our churches accountable to political ideologies rather than the theology, the creeds, and the identity of who we are baptized in Christ Jesus. This is a reckoning. This is a time of repentance and lament for how much we have tangled up the cross with our flag. I'm not sure we know how to be healthy patriots right now. Healthy patriots who love our country and not let that love broil over into nationalism, an unhealthy religious nationalism. Jesus ends our passage today by saying, recalling us from Jacob's ladder, that he is the point at which the angels ascend and descend from heaven to earth. He is the connection point between all of creation and all of heaven. And the one who connects heaven to earth is the one who sees you now. Come and see Jesus. Come and see. Come and see the one who said, All power and authority are given unto me. And he took off the towel and washed the disciples' feet. Come and see the one who said, Blessed are the meek. He didn't say, Blessed are the tough. He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, not the bringers of insurrection. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who bring the, the peace of Christ in this world are the ones who will bless this world through Christ's peace. We are ones who never get caught up in the love of power because we who are called Christians should be the first ones who are convinced of the power of love that can overwhelm all evil and principalities of darkness, we can overcome with the love of Christ. So where do you least expect God to move? Is it in a place that you consider weak and forgotten and unable to change our culture? We need to rethink that and repent in our minds that the way that America, our culture, talks about toughness and self-sufficiency and rugged individualism and taking things by force and protecting who we are by any means necessary, no matter how violent, that is not the church. 
Maybe we need to reimagine and refresh who we see Jesus to be. The one who washes people's feet, the one who takes up his cross and self-sacrifices himself for the sake of love and God's salvation in the world. The one who calls us to peace, the one who calls us to mercy, the one who calls us to being and abiding in mercy when we dispense justice. How do you least likely expect God to move? Do, do we expect God to move only in the halls of our political power? Or do you expect God to move where Jesus spent most of his time with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, those the world thinks nothing good about? Can anything good come from them? And Jesus turns and says to us, I am among them. That is where I am. We may be wondering, can anything good come from this meek and mild, gentle, yet powerfully loving Messiah? And I think our first step towards repenting from the display of violence in the name of Jesus as a culture, because even though we weren't there, Christ's name was carried into that violence. And we are going to be responsible for how the world sees us in a redemptive, reconciliatory light. I think our first step is to understand Jesus from Scripture and not any sort of myth that we have that compares Jesus to John Wayne or General MacArthur or any of these strong, rugged, macho, militant, masculine men. We need to understand who Jesus actually is in Scripture and emulate that Christ. Because it's more important for us to be Christian first and American second. And we need to let the, the, the identity of who Jesus is as baptized Christians to be the first and foremost and the last thing that shapes us. The first and the last. I think those first steps towards repentance means to understand who it is that we're actually following. Because Nathaniel ends it by saying, Teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the one true King. And I believe that with all my heart, that Christ is the one true king. There is no king but Christ. Not Caesar, not any president, not any ruler of the world. There is no king but Jesus. And Jesus calls us to a very different way of living than the things, the rhetoric that you have been seeing on the news. Leadership is so important in days like these. And when leaders allow their words to be reckless, when leaders allow their words to be interpreted to lead towards violence, those leaders need to be held accountable. And it is so important to understand that Christ is the kind of leader that takes his words seriously. Christ is the kind of leader that never incited violence with his words. Christ is the kind of leader that would always condemn sin that led to harming other people, condemned hate, condemned bigotry, condemned racism. 
And it's important that the church start with our own hearts. Like that committal prayer today, are we purging our hearts of any sort of violence? Because violence starts with words and intentions. Like Jesus says, if you store up anger in your heart, it is, a, a, it is tantamount to taking the life of someone else because it starts in here. And so if we want to repent, if we want to bring Christ's redemption in the world and show the world that we are not what they saw at that insurrection of the Capitol, we must start with ourselves of understanding who Christ is as this Messiah that leads us to the cross and understand that we are so transformed by the power of his love and let that love be the power that we change this world for Christ's kingdom. This is a lot to process this morning. We're going to have a Zoom hangout afterwards. If you'd like to come and talk about these things more or just to see us, please stick around and hang out with us on the Zoom call. But let me pray for us today before we continue on. Lord, have mercy. Lord, send your grace, send your peace. Lord, we pray for the, those who have committed violence in your name, and we ask for transformation. Lord, we pray for those that the violence had hurt and wounded. We pray for their healing. Lord, we, we pray for those lives that were taken and their families. We ask that your comfort would be with them. And Lord God, we have seen violence all throughout uh, these, uh, our, our, the, the past several years, Lord God. There have been enactments of violence, and we know that that tears and wounds your heart. Lord God, we pray for those who are planning violence in their heart, even now, that your spirit would hold sway your spirit would take over. Your spirit would bring peace. Lord, we pray for the upcoming inauguration. We pray for Washington, D.C. We pray for all 50 state capitals. We pray for the everyday family that is simply trying to get by. And we ask for the peace of Christ to prevail. Lord God, may those who plan chaos and evil be thwarted. And may the world see your love through the church. May the world see your mercy and your proactive power of healing. And may it start with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.